Welcome back to our third episode of the podcast. It's Today fail. we were hoping to talk about... Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's start over. That was a bad opening. Let's start over. Okay, welcome back to the show. Today we were thinking that we would take a break from the mock interview format and jump into some kind of backing ideas of like basically SQL databases versus NoSQL databases, um, the trade-offs, what, which one gives you what. Um, we thought we'd talk through that today. Yeah, if you remember from the uh, last podcast when we talked about you know designing the system for the Facebook feed, we had mentioned uh, NoSQL as an alternative to storing uh, the data of a news feed. And so we wanted to just elaborate on what that exactly means and just expand upon the advantages and disadvantages of SQL versus NoSQL. Cool. Um, so let's, I guess, jump right in. And we'll start with, I think we're going to kind of assume a bit of knowledge from the listener in terms of SQL databases, but we will give some like thought to the features that make them unique, um, especially as compared to NoSQL. So, you know, I, Kevin, what are some key features of a SQL relational database to you? Uh, yeah, so starting out, um, let's define what SQL is. SQL is structured query language. It's not actually like a database. It's a language uh, that a lot of, you know, relational databases use. So anytime you see something like select star from table, uh, that would be using, you know, SQL syntax. Um, some examples of SQL databases would be like MySQL, MSQL. Uh, and you can generally think of these databases as having tabular formatted data that is relational to one another. So, for example, you know, going back to our Facebook feed, if you wanted to store that data in a, a relational database, you'd have separate tables you know, for your users, separate tables for your posts, and you'd have foreign key relationships between those two tables. So that's basically what SQL is, and it's pretty useful for if you want to maintain data integrity uh, across, you know, the, the data that you're storing, but it sometimes is an overkill, uh, and we'll go into use cases for when that's the case. Mm -hmm. So what is uh, what do you mean by, like, maintain da data integrity? Like, what kind of data am I storing that is good for a SQL use case? Yeah, so when I when I mean maintain data integrity, what I what I mean is that SQL is really good at maintaining acid compliance. Uh so this is a term that not all of the viewers may have heard before. Um but acid compliance is basically a set of principles that guarantees data integrity on your data store. Uh the A in acid or uh, stands for uh, atomic. So what atomic means is that any, you know, anytime you issue a transaction, so as an example, like if you were to update a table with new values, you can be guaranteed that that transaction, if it succeeds, is going to succeed entirely. And if it fails, the transaction will roll back. So your database will look like it did, you know, before the transaction was executed. You can sort of think of this as like all or nothing, right? So, you know, the, the company that we work for, uh, MasterCard Data and Services, uh, we're a financial institution and we work with a lot of financial data, right? A lot of our clients, you know, care a lot about the data integrity of their financials. When they load new financial data, they want to make sure that it is up to date and accurate. And so in this case, you know, having the operations, um, loading their data be atomic is incredibly useful. So before you go on to the next, like, 
CID of ACID. I wanted to ask, I have a hard time, like, when, when is there a use case that you don't want your data to be right, is what it sounds like you're, you're suggesting there might be such a, a, you know, contrary use case. Yeah, so I, I would say that it, the, the, the way that you should think about it is that, like, for a lot of use cases, like the Facebook feed example, right, um, we, it's, it's not so much that we don't care if the data is right, because NoSQL or alternatives to SQL also, you know, for the most part, you know, write data correctly. We're talking about like the, the failure cases, right? How much failure is acceptable? And for, you know, things that are read heavy uh, and only written once, like we are okay with, you know, eventually being consistent and, you know, for a subset of our data to uh, not be persisted uh, if an operation fails. So in the in the sense of like Facebook, let's say like you were writing a status, right? You know, 99.99% of the time, like that transaction is going to succeed. But in the case that it fails, it's not going to be catastrophic. And, but I guess your implication there is that it's not that it fails and my, my status is never updated. It's that it fails and it, it gets updated later. Instead of being immediately updated, it takes maybe a minute or two for my friends to see it. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the term there is eventual consistency, right? Like there's no guarantee that, you know, your data is going to be consistent, um, but, you know, it will eventually, uh, eventually be consistent. Cool. Um, awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's a good segue into what consistency is. So. Um, you know, with SQL, right, you have a guarantee that your data is going to be consistent, meaning that, like, all data will be valid according to all of its, you know, defined rules. So SQL allows you to specify upon table creation, you know, constraints that are on the table, uh, as well as triggers. Uh, and those constraints um, need to be inf are enforced every time you do, a tr do an operation like an update. If, you know, your update doesn't pass these consistency checks, that update will be rejected. That's not the case with some alternatives. Um, and the I in, uh, yep, the I in, um, acid means isolation. So the, the way to think about this is that, like, you know, when you're executing update statements, uh, on a SQL database, right, uh, we want to make sure that one update does not affect the other. So with SQL, you get the guarantee that like transactions are executed one after another and no transaction will be affected by the prior transaction until, you know, it closes. Meaning, you know, as a, if I'm updating the database, a subsequent read can't access that update until the update is finished. And the last, the last part of asset is durability, which means that, you know, when a transaction is committed, it'll remain in the system. So you can obviously see why, like for financial data, this is this is valuable. It would be, you know, almost contract ending for some of our clients if we didn't guarantee that you know their financial data was you know stable. And if you know a transaction is said to have succeeded, that that success won't revert. Awesome. Thanks for all that. I guess as a super quick recap, a atomic meaning that transactions succeed or fail entirely. C consistency going from one valid state to the next. Isolation, you don't have like concurrent queries causing weird effects. D for durability, things like stay done when they're done. So can you tell me a bit about like, of all the properties you just described, um, like acid compliance in particular, 
what is there about a SQL database that is considered a downside? And like, why do we even need NoSQL databases? Yeah. So if the question is like, what is wrong with SQL databases? Then I, I, I think a good analogy that I have off the top of my head, because I was recently doing a bit of driving lately, is you can think of SQL databases similar to like an automatic transmission in your car. Recently ran into like performance issues with my automatic uh, transmission vehicle. I was traveling up to Fairbanks, Alaska this weekend, uh, and uh, on my way up to Fairbanks, um, there's a lot of mountains and hills, uh, and I was driving an older model of car, and I was running into what I thought was transmission issues because when I was moving up a up a steep hill, my car would drop from 70 miles per hour to 50 miles per hour. Um, later took it into the shop and realized that it was because the automatic transmission was not properly computing whether it needed to like downshift gears. Uh, and so with SQL tables, you can sort of think of it as the same, right? Like SQL is really smart when it comes to, you know, enforcing you know, your foreign keys and helping you, you know, do operations like joins against multiple tables. But that that usefulness kind of comes with a cost. Joins are sometimes very slow under the hood. You know, SQL has to compute hash tables, row estimates and come up with its own query plans. And sometimes those query plans are off and lead to performance implications. Um, and so just like an automatic car, right, there are sometimes performance issues when, when you don't necessarily and it might be an overkill uh, for its use case. Uh, the other issue with SQL databases is because, you know, you have data living on multiple tables. Uh, it's really difficult to, you know, replicate and shard this data across different nodes in a distributed system. So I think something that might be worth going into a little bit, Wes, is like the cap theorem. Yeah, sure. I can talk about that a bit. And I'll say, we'll throw a link in the show notes, but I would recommend pulling up this, you know, link and, you know, reading about it on your own if you haven't already. But it's kind of an overview. The idea here is that, you know, CAP theorem, right? Consistency, um, availability, and prediction tolerance. The idea is that these three properties are kind of at odds with each other. CAP theorem is, it applies to distributed systems, right? So when you have multiple server nodes running a single system, for example, this system's a database. So consistency is the idea that, like, when I go to read a row, I kind of always get the latest right. So basically, whether I'm reading from server A or server B, whichever one I get routed to, always has the most up-to-date data. The idea of consistency, this uh, sorry, availability, the A, is that basically if one of the servers goes down, um, I can still access the other ones. The system still generally functions despite the loss of a server or two. The P in the CAP theorem is the idea that we can support partition tolerance. Let's say we have 10 nodes. Imagine they each have like a wire connected to each other. So there's a bunch of wires. And let's say we go through with scissors and snip off some random portion of those wires. Um, that's a partition, right? So if, if we had cut off such that there's now five on the left side and five on the right side, and you can't talk between the left and the right, they're totally separate halves, that's a partition down the middle. So the idea is here is that the P is that we want our code or you know, system to work if there is a partition, right? But anyways, the cap theorem, the trade-off there, the tension is that it kind of states you can really kind of fundamentally only have two of those things out of three. And there is, I guess also, like, predictions will happen, right? It's the real world. Networks are fallible. Your, your network will fail at some point. What you can do, though, is you can play with the how strong of consistency you want. Um, so, you know, strong consistency, uh, we often say when we mean, like, you know, like I said, you get the latest uh, right or for every read you do, right? Like, you always get the most up-to-date value. 
But it's actually, there's use cases, I think you might have mentioned this earlier, Kevin, where it's okay if it takes, like if you're updating your Facebook status, right? It's okay if my it doesn't get updated on all the tables for a few minutes, right? And we call that maybe eventual consistency or weak consistency. And so, you know, being able to use that in place of strong consistency kind of gives you um, a bit a bit of all of the properties, really. Um, some prediction tolerance, some availability, some consistency. Um, but anyways, SQL, um, you know, there's a whole world to talk about with the cap theorem in itself, but SQL, relational SQL um, databases naturally kind of fall into the, like, highly consistent um, place, and they naturally don't really even have, like, prediction tolerance. So they call it, they kind of fall in the CA place, which just means that, like, when you're replicating SQL databases, what do you do if one fails? It, it's a it's not a very natural problem for SQL to solve. Um, it can be done. There's definitely ways to do this kind of stuff, but it's just really not baked into the behavior of most SQL databases. Um, the baked-in assumption of most SQL databases is that they're all running on one node, or if it's on multiple nodes, that none of them will ever fail or, or be partitioned. Um, so as a result, um, yeah, like you mentioned, these things don't really just like SQL tables don't really naturally shard, right? And sharding, to be clear, is like the idea that if I have 100 users um, that I want to insert into a table, but my, my server only has room for 50 users on each table, um, on each server, then, you know, sharding it would basically be saying like, take the first half of the users, put them on this table on server A, second half, put them on server B. So that's sharding. And yeah, like I said, SQL just often doesn't really support that natively very well. So yeah, I guess that brings up any questions about that or any other thoughts? Yeah, so so to play that back, right? It, it sounds like what you're saying is, is if you have a use case where you know you don't really care about uh, data consistency, you're okay with eventual consistency, uh, and you know if you don't really care about the the properties of being able to do joins or you know verify foreign keys, then you should be exploring alternatives. Yeah, I would say if you were at a scale where, you know, if it's at a very small scale, then it probably doesn't even make a difference either way. But when you get to these big scales, like, when, you know, replication and sharding are both things that you probably need when you have, when you're scaling up, right? When you need more data that can fit on one machine, or when you, when you really need a lot of availability, hence you need to replicate your data. That's uh, something that you, yeah, it's a challenge of scale that probably opens up the, the question of, is NoSQL a good a good choice here? Yeah. So once you get to the point where vertically scaling doesn't work for your application anymore, and you need to horizontally scale, then you know SQL databases sort of hits the um, the rock in the road. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. Like a like a SQL database just doesn't naturally scale beyond the capacity of one machine, um, especially in terms of like rights. So yeah, that's that's a great way of saying it. Cool. Um, yeah, so with that, do we want to dive a little bit into like some of the some of the uh, NoSQL alternatives that we've been researching the last uh, couple of weeks? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just briefly mention, you know, I've spent some time looking into Cassandra. We're not going to talk about that too much. It's a wide column database. Um, you've been looking into a document storage database called MongoDB. Is that right? Uh, yeah, MongoDB. Cool. And, you know, I guess we'll all say we've kind of looked at things like Redis or Memcache, which I think you could call like a, a key value storage database, like a NoSQL database. It's basically just lookups given a, a value. Um, how would you, so MongoDB, we said it's a document oriented database. What exactly does that mean? 
Yep. So MongoDB is a document-oriented database. So what that means is that the data that you're storing is going to be unstructured. There's no column definition like, you know, tabular data in SQL. So for MongoDB specifically, right, what we're dealing with is like a collection of documents. So a collection is a grouping and a document is the the uh, unit of operation that you're going to be storing data. So for example, you know, if I were to store an object called posts for my Facebook feed, that post object would represent, you know, my document and I might have a collection of them that I store. So the the interesting thing here is that what we mean by unstructured is that uh, this document is going to be stored as something that looks similar to JSON, right? There's going to be a key and a value. That value can be an integer, a string, it can be an array, it can even be, you know, another nested object. So there's a lot of flexibility for how you're defining, you know, your, your objects. And within a collection of objects, each of the documents uh, doesn't necessarily have to have the same fields. Um, that's, you know, one of the distinct differences in my head. With SQL, right, anytime, and SQL developers will kind of have this shared experience of, you know, anytime you're adding a row to a specific table, you need to populate every single column uh, for that row. Anytime you add a new column to the table, you need to start thinking about how do I back populate or, you know, null populate all existing entries. And that can be tricky sometimes. Uh, with MongoDB, um, you know, if your schema changes because we're working in a schemaless environment, right, you can just start inserting documents uh, with the updated schema. Okay, cool. So I guess you have that's probably a double-edged sword, right? Because it's easy to add new data as you like get new information, like or from your, you know, add a new element on your web page form or something. You have new information to store. It's probably easy to do that. But on the flip side, you don't have the guarantee when you're reading later on that the data does exist in the same form everywhere. Um, so you can see that's a kind of a double-sided sword there. Yeah. So back to the car analogy, it would be kind of like a manual transmission, right? You don't have the checks that you'd have in place. Uh, you have a little bit more control, but again, you're lifting up a lot of that. Uh, heavy work of, you know, checking constraints to the application layer. So it's definitely a different way of thinking about how to store and read data. Okay, got it. Cool. And you mentioned a key. Is a key just like, is it like what I think of as a primary key in SQL? It's just like, does every row need a key, I guess? Um, so in, in that example that I mentioned, when I say key, I just meant like key value store. So for example, in post, I might have a user um, key and a value, right? Um, there is a concept of primary keys in NoSQL, so you are able to specify or performance of your queries like a primary key. And there's actually some really cool stuff that you can use to specify your key uh, for performance reasons. Uh, so, for example, you can index on things like text values, decimal values. You can even do something called index on geospatial data. So, for example, if you have coordinates uh, and you want to you know, index based on location, you can do that. And in, in, in general, like um, with these indexes, performance of NoSQL databases like MongoDB is actually pretty damn good um, just because, you know, you're not you're not having to do these consistency checks that you would normally have to do with, with SQL. Okay, I'm starting to see, I'm starting to understand the card analogy of like, it basically all of the things that the database enforces, we kind of have to do ourselves, right? So there is some more work 
on the application layer ourselves. Right, right. Um, yeah. Cool. That makes sense. So I think you might have mentioned um, that we don't have any joins. You know, it's not a feature, like at least in general, NoSQL databases don't offer you joins. How do you get around that? Like, what if I have, you know, a table of users and I have a table of like Facebook posts, right? Like, how do I connect a user to a post? Or if I, if you tell me like, here's a post ID and like post information, how do I know about who the user is or things like that? Yeah. So it's a different way of thinking about how to store your data, right? With, with SQL, you're, you know, you're naturally thinking about how do I normalize my, my data and store things into different tables. Uh, with NoSQL, you're sort of thinking from the perspective of the application. You're thinking like, this operation that my application needs to do, right? What data does it need to store? And then you would store all the data that you would need for that operation within a single document. That's that's how you get rid of the need to do a join. Uh, what that does mean is that you often end up with a very, very demor- denormalized database uh, with, you know, replicated uh, fields in, in, in multiple places that you'd have to keep consistent. That's why, you know, we go back and say, like, with NoSQL databases, you, you want to make sure that you have a very read-heavy use case because every write that you're doing, your application layer needs to make sure that data is consistent as you update across your entire denormalized data set. Cool. Yeah. It sounded like you were about to say a demoralized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just tired. It is. It's just done. <laughs> it's got no constraints. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Awesome. So I guess my next question would be about like, we talked about one of the core problems we had with SQL databases is that they don't really shard very well. Um, So when you get too big for one server, SQL just doesn't really have a great solution for that. Does NoSQL help with that? And how do they help with that? Yeah. So for MongoDB specifically, sharding is a first class concept. It is natively supported. And the reason why it happens so naturally is because for the most part, everything here comes with a asterisk. Like for the most part, there is no ability to do joins. And so your documents are more or less unitized, right? Across an entire collection, you can split up your documents into, you know, different nodes uh, within your distributed system. For sharding specifically in MongoDB, there's a concept of like uh, a sharding key that you can provide uh, and assign to each document within your collection. And MongoDB is going to take care of, you know, determining which node uh, a specific document falls in. Okay, great. I was about to ask, how do I know where to look for a particular row, which server to look on? But it sounds like the sharding key is going to... I'm guessing there's some kind of like master table they have behind the scenes of, you know... So, you know, keys A through F live on the server, et cetera. Yeah, I, and if you're if you're interested in learning more about how sharding works, I would definitely point you towards you know the MongoDB documentation, which we can link. There's you know specific details about you know what are the best practices for determining a shard key. Uh, you definitely want to make sure you know the shard key that you define is spread out across you know the the right set of. Um, it allows your data to be spread out equally and distributed well. Sure. Yeah, you don't want to have that distribution of data across servers. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I guess my question is, why aren't NoSQL databases usually ACID-compliant? Because there's something fundamental about them that makes it hard to, to use ACID-compliance? 
Or have as with clients? Yeah, so so my understanding is that like the the key to why it's difficult for NoSQL databases traditionally to have uh to, to not have ASIN compliance is because you know we're dealing with distributed systems uh with multiple replica sets, right? Take for example you know, enforcing that an operation is atomic, right? Uh, if you have your data replicated across, you know, multiple nodes and one of those nodes goes down, uh, it's difficult for NoSQL to decide whether to commit that, you know, update that transaction through or to revert the transaction in that scenario. And if, for example, NoSQL decides to roll back every transaction if a replica set is down, well, then that sort of defeats the purpose of having the replica set to begin with. So that's the fundamental problem that we're dealing with uh, is, is the problem of just having a distributed system uh, with your data replicated. That makes sense. And it sounds like that's kind of tying back to the cap theorem again, right? Where like, if you wanted that strong consistency, you'd have to sacrifice prediction tolerance. It sounds like often in NoSQL cases, we're kind of okay with eventual consistency. And therefore, we, when we're okay with eventual consistency, we probably don't need asset compliance. And... When we say that, like at that point, we're, we're opening the door to it's okay if one server goes down. We don't have to stop roll system. Yeah. I, I will caveat and say that, like with MongoDB in particular, uh, we do have like support for asset compliance and atomic modifiers at the collection level. I'm not entirely sure of the details of how, how this, this is impl- implemented, but I imagine it has something to do with like, you know, holding a lock, uh, you know, on the collection itself uh, when you're doing a write and or, you know, not having to deal with replica sets. And the collection is like a group of rows or documents in one server. Yeah. So to play that back, a collection is, is, is a group of documents and a document is, you know, similar to what you would think of as a row in a SQL database. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so I think I don't have too many like questions or talking points left. I guess maybe to kind of like to put this onto like a more concrete example, what are some use cases for like real world use cases for actually using NoSQL now that we kind of understand some of the properties of it? Yep. So, you know, one of the more common Use cases for a document store data model like MongoDB is when you're, like I mentioned, very write heavy uh, and you don't expect to be doing, you know, complicated joins or caring about, you know, data consistency. So as a concrete example, like think about, you know, eBay, right? When eBay stores, you know, it's eBay listings, right? I imagine that they're probably going with some sort of um, document store NoSQL implementation where they store, you know, product ID along with this product information like description and price. And the reason they can get away with that is because they have large volumes of data that they want, you know, distributed uh, and they want to scale horizontally. And they don't really care if an update to the um, to the listing isn't propagated immediately to every other node within the distributed system. Uh, and then, you know, t- time... So we get that. Yep, and time back to the Facebook... The Facebook example from the last episode was also a great example of, you know, when NoSQL databases like MongoDB was a good option. Like Facebook walls and Facebook feeds, you know, are also more read-heavy than they are write-heavy. And they're okay with, you know, not every user seeing the most up-to-date Facebook feed, um, only that, you know, will eventually reach consistency. Nice. I'll throw in one classic systems and interview example, which is the question is design a like 
link shortener, like bit.ly kind of service, and the mapping from like shortened URL to long form URL um, is a classic thing you can store in SQL, just because you know it's going to scale well beyond the, the amount that one server can, can handle. Yeah, I, I will say that through this entire exercise, um, just like looking through MongoDB documentation was was really useful. Obviously, Stack Overflow there's and other resources were also equally helpful, but I think the MongoDB uh, documents were just very well written and explained a lot of the concepts that we covered today. So definitely, there's going to be a link uh, for people to take a look at. Cool. Um, one last blurb I wanted to mention. Um, well, is there anything else about MongoDB that you wanted to say? Um, nope. I think that was that covered most of it. Cool. Yeah, one last thing I'll just kind of say um, is, you know, NoSQL is a big term, like we mentioned, and it doesn't only encompass, like, document storage, right? Um, so the the two other main categories of database that I, NoSQL databases that I know of, are wide column store, which is kind of a blend of, it has that, like, really heavy scalability of, like, a MongoDB, like, very horizontally scalable. It does give you a little bit more, like, s- strong typing in terms of the actual columns, that's a whole topic on its own. Another one is, is graph-oriented databases. So, like, actually storing things like graph data with, like, you know, like a graph, like nodes, edges kind of thing. I don't know much about those myself. I think they're, they're, that's probably one of the most new styles of database to emerge. Um, so I don't think they're even too mature of products yet. I will say to our listeners, like, uh, Wes and I's agenda for podcasts isn't, like, set in stone, so we're definitely open to, you know, listener feedback about what kind of stuff we, we should be covering next, um, as well as, you know, feedback on content in general. Yeah, feel free to send us, I think the email should be posted um, in the podcast description, but we have a podcast email, and you can feel free to message us with any, like, questions or ideas or anything we'd be happy to hear, to hear from you. Cool. Cool. Um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> this was a fun episode. Cool. Done. That was that was pretty cool. good. You're going to have some fun editing, but I think that's going to be... It was pretty good. We had some really good content there. 